0: Welcome to the Arrive and Thrive Podcast. We are your hosts, Tyson Day and Daniel Linardi. Our podcast is designed to give you fresh perspectives and educational insights to make sure you thrive in every moment.
1: Regularly, we are joined by thought leaders, life learners, and generally amazing humans who bring an approach just like us, casual, relaxed, and curious. Listeners, are you ready
0: for a journey of career riddles, thought-provoking stories, and personal insights that will make your mind tick? In this episode, we speak with Sandeep Varma, the founder of South Asian Australians Representing Ideas, also known as the Sari Collective. Sandeep has had an incredible career, including working in government communications during a major crisis in Australia, becoming a lawyer and working in employment and safety law, as well as sitting on a few different boards that cover important challenges for young people. Sandeep shares his perspectives on finding purpose, the importance of mental health and gets Dan and I thinking about a few career conundrums. These are particularly good for all those career education nerds out there. (laughs) We hope you enjoy
1: the episode and stay tuned. Arrive and Thrive would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we recorded this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, leaders past, present and emerging.
0: Well, listeners, we've got a very special guest with us this evening. I'd love to introduce to you Sandeep Varma. How are you going, man? Yeah, pretty well. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And, um, Danny, how are you going tonight, buddy?
1: Yeah, going great. Going great. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Now, Sandeep, you're from the, or you co-founded, sorry, founded the Sari Collective. Um, yeah. Amongst, obviously involved in amongst other things. But, mate, please give our, our listeners a snapshot around who you are and what you do.
2: Yeah, sure. So I'm Sandeep. My background personally is Indian, uh, but I grew up in the U S and I've been in Australia for almost 20 years now. Um, So I've kind of migrated twice in a sense. Um, And professionally, like my background is a couple steps in the journey. So I started off in communications and media. Uh, I became a speechwriter. I worked in a lot of kind of crisis and emergency management environments. Um, including bushfires and tsunamis and things like that. Um, I kind of had this feeling that I wanted to be really good at being in a crisis. And maybe that's because I already was good in a crisis and I just wanted to express that. But um, so, and then that led me to working on the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009. Afterwards we had it, which was the most intense period of my life, um, work-wise. And and then we had a royal commission for two years. So I was working in, gu- in the government as a speechwriter. Um, we were working on policy, we helped kickstart a whole bunch of initiatives in terms of emergency services using social media and a whole bunch of other spaces. But um I often felt like during the royal commission, like I didn't have the legal vocabulary to engage with what was going on and understanding the laws and things. So I got a scholarship and I studied law part-time um and became a lawyer because I thought it'd be really useful to practice those skills. But the more I did it, um the more I, it didn't hit that sweet spot for me. I didn't like find that love of it. Um, I enjoyed it. And then I had kids um, and I kind of had a pretty traumatic experience with my first son being born um, because of some health issues with him, which I can dive into in a bit. And it changed my thinking about what I wanted to do with myself and the impact I wanted to make in the world. So I kind of went back to my roots. Um, and what I remember really caring about a lot was volunteering with kids a lot. Um, my favorite subject at law school was actually children's rights law, but it's not like a space you can get much work in. I was a youth lawyer for a little while um, and did some human rights projects along the way. And that led me to uh, this space where I was working with young people across Victoria, um, helping them in leadership. And I met a lot of um, young people and I met a lot of young people from my like, diverse cultural backgrounds, including my own like South Asian Indian kind of backgrounds. And um, a lot of them are saying, oh, we don't really have a space for ourselves. We don't see ourselves anywhere in Australia, in the media, anywhere else. And when I first came to Australia, I had done a master's thesis on that exact topic um, called, you know, it was about South Asian identity in the media. And at the same time, I, growing up, had those feelings like I don't see myself anywhere, you know, on television or being writing about things or giving my perspective on the world. Um, And so I was like, something's got to be done about this. So... We took that idea um, we put it through a pre-accelerator program through an organization called Catalyzer uh, and that helped create the Sari Collective, which is a media platform for South Asians in Australia. Sari actually stands for South Asian Australians representing ideas. And we do a couple of things. So we publish, um, articles in the media, we distribute our content, but our mission is to help amplify South Asian voices in Australia. And so we do that by not only having a community, um, to support people. We have about 80 people across the country who are registered to be writers with us. Um, but we also really doubled down on that initial support. So people that kind of have an idea or want to express themselves or maybe have written some stuff and don't feel confident with it to help, you know, increase them, build their skills, build their capacity to be able to write, um, to be able to express themselves, create content. That's really engaging and interesting. Um, and we believe that that's a really important skill to have for the future, to be able to express yourself, to be able to like, structurally kind of write things that make sense, because then uh, um, people can take those skills and, and you know publish through our platform, talk about their identity, talk about the issues that matter to our community and the perspectives that come from being South Asian in Australia, which there are over a million of us um, at the moment, and you don't see many of us in the media. Um, And then also take those skills and get into politics or get into the media uh, or get into business or get into social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship um, and get into social justice work or any of those spaces and find, um, you know, find ways to then be examples for other people in the community or whether you're creative, which is not an often worn pathway in many of our communities is often a kind of a a migrant mentality of getting a a good paying job, you know, that doesn't involve that kind of creative journey. So we're really encouraging creative types as well. And people who want to express themselves creatively through our platform and through our community. So that's why Saudi exists to try and uh, parallel the journey of South Asians growing in Australia and being part of the community and the culture and making that impact and being more visible and providing a platform and a support base for them to do so. It's
0: amazing, man! It's absolutely amazing. I think um, I know I've got so many questions running through my head around yeah. your, your career journey and and the way in which it's gone. And and I think a part of that, you know, the purpose alignment. And what I'm hearing is like you've really found your purpose alignment through many conversations mm. and and different relationships and connections that you've created. Before we jump down that, I know mm. we've got before we jumped on air, listeners, we were thinking we might take change things up a little bit. Um, and you've got a, a couple of um, questions from, from some cards that you were sharing with us, mate, before we came yeah, on. Yeah, so those? I can give
2: some background to your re- listeners. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, really into communications and part of that is psycho- like human psychology, how people's brains work and what people do in situations. Um, and so one of the people I like to read, his name is Dan Ariely. He wrote a book called Predictably Irrational um, and also Amazing Decisions and a few other books as well. So he studies how people like act really, as opposed to what they say they're gonna do. Um, and he studies kind of what we would call irrational behavior, you know, like non-logical things that people seem to do when they do them on mass. So he has this, he turned his book, one of his books into a game called the irrational game. And it's just a series of cards and it's super nerdy. Um, <laughs> but they have these like, he's kind of trying to make studies interesting. Um, Anyway, so there's a couple here that are really good jumping, like good questions, but also interesting scenarios. And they're jumping off points for, I think, a conversation that we can have tonight. Um, And so I'll read one out and then let me know if you want to do others after that. So uh, this one's called When Life Gives You Lemons, Make Lemonade. So participants tasted a glass of lemonade and rated how much they liked it. Next, they learned how much lemon and sugar were in the lemonade. And finally, they were asked to create their ideal lemonade trying out different amounts of the sugar and lemon until they got the right mix. Um, Some of the participants initially tasted really bland lemonade, while others initially tasted really strong lemonade, lots of lemon and lots of sugar. So this is like American lemonade, right? Um, So the question is, how did participants in the experiment, uh, how did they experiment with their ideal lemonade? So there's four choices. So number one did participants who initially got strong lemonade, did they try out a narrower range of intensities? The second question is, were um, participants who initially got bland lemonade, did they try out a narrow range of, in, of intensities? And the third question is, did participants who liked their lemonade, um, and did they try out a narrower range of intensities regardless of the concentration? So basically that means like, what choices did they make about how narrow, how intense they wanted their lemonade to be depending on how they started. And the fourth one is that participants who didn't like the lemonade got, um, they got tried out a narrow range, regardless of the concentration. Do you want me to repeat those? Yeah. Yeah, okay. man. <laughs> it's, a,
0: it's a bit of a brain scrambler for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. So how did, like, people are asked, given a first, they're given a, um, some people are given a bland lemonade and some people are given a strong lemonade. That's yep. the basis of the scenario, right? And then they're asked to make their ideal mix using like sugar and lemon. So, number one um, is people who got the strong lemonade. And did they try out like a really broad range of things? Did they try a lot of different combos or did they try less? Number two, um, the people who got bland lemonade. Did they try out a narrow range of intensities, like a narrow range of like the combinations that they tried and then the people who got um, people who liked the lemonade they got. So that that means they got one that that tasted better. That wasn't bland. Uh, Did they try out a narrower range of things or did they try out a broader range of things? And then people who didn't like the lemonade they got, did they try out a narrow range or a broader range?
1: I would imagine the ones, the ones that, got the strong lemonade would have tried more, sorry, would have tried less than the ones that got the blend. Because if they got strong, I reckon you'd be like, oh, just go a little bit weaker and that's it. If you got bland, you probably got more scope to work with. And then I think the ones that liked the lemonade obviously would have tried to make it a bit stronger, I feel maybe. And then the ones that got it weak, yeah, might've gone for more.
2: So which one of those statements do you think is true?
1: The second one. Okay. What's the second one again?
2: So participants who got initially got bland lemonade, tried out a narrow range of intensities.
1: Now I reckon the first statement's correct.
2: So people who initially got strong lemonade, tried out a narrow range of intensities. Narrower range. That means they, they, yeah, they tried out a different, like narrower mixes, less mixes of things.
1: No, I don't reckon that's true.
2: I, I th- I'm just going to jump in here. I think the, mm.
0: the, the third one resonated mostly for me.
2: Mm. So people who liked lemonade they yeah. got uh, tried out a narrow range of intensities regardless of the concentration. So if you like it, that yep. means you try it out narrow regardless if it was like lots of lemon or lots of sugar. Yeah. All right. So the answer is actually number three, right? Nice fist pumping in the air. Uh, So the answer is those participants who liked the lemonade they got tried out a narrow range of intensities, regardless of the concentration of the lemonade. So what that means, it sounds really technical as a study, right? Because it's narrow and the listeners might not have followed along with the whole card thing. But the takeaway is what's really right? (laughs) <laughs> it was te- technically worded, right? Um, which is why this is not the best game to buy, which is why I'm reading it out to you because no one's probably going <laughs> to buy this. Um, Try before you buy. <laughs> yeah, and feel free to cut this out. But like um, the takeaway, so what he says is that when we imagine our likes and dislikes, we tend to think that influenced only by our tastes and preferences in that moment. Mm. But the study shows that our initial exposure to an experience matters a lot. So our initial experience can narrow or open how we are exploring new options. And thus, it can also limit our ability to find our optimal experience within that. So once we decide we like something, we tend to search for fewer, more similar alternatives. Mm. And then fighting against this tendency and exploring a wider range of options is difficult, but it's an important step towards increasing your happiness. And the reason I brought up this really kind of technical, kind of complicated study-based example is it's a little bit irrational, which is interesting. Um, But the point around like that our initial experience narrows us to just doing that thing is very much a career theme, I think, for me. Absolutely. I think it's about like, you know, some people have that initial exposure to something, right? And then they go, yep, I want to do that thing. Mm -hmm. and, And then they go down a pathway that's narrower and narrower related to that thing. Um, as opposed to broadening their options and trying something totally different, because there's a big mm. risk there. There's a perceived like kind of change um, in how that works. And for me, that's definitely something that that seems true in like my journey of you know getting exposed to something and then trying to broaden my options and then um, but not broadening them enough, I think. And mm. then and then coming back to like a- and taking a time when I. Um, you know, like I mentioned before, I had my kids, and especially my first, um, my 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 son, who's my first son, um, and the healthy challenges he experienced when he was born, like made me look at like things from a new perspective, and also say, well, actually, like let me open this up to a slightly broader range of options, and 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 that for me has been a really important part of the journey, of, like getting to a point where I could feel like um, I was in a place where I considered actually more many more things than I would have and made a better decision for it mm. um, and I think we often kind of narrow ourselves to decision making in a narrow frame and there's probably other options we haven't even thought about um, but we don't spend the time doing that because we think we're kind of we're kind of peaked by our initial experience mm. even if the, like the lemonade is not that tasty mm. I think it's such a good
0: point because I think the theme I always hear a lot is oh, I fell into this career or I um, yeah you know, I stumbled across this, and and my argument is always because you know you were already kind of in that realm of of areas, and I think a lot of people find, well, the conversations I've had, it's when if you're you're trying and learning new things from a work perspective or a careers perspective. I think modern day professional commentary is that you're wasting your time, or You're not moving towards, um, you know, higher pay, more responsibility, progression in the the vertical sense, essentially. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. What do you reckon, Danny? The thing that interests me as well is that if you try something and then your initial experience is bad, you're less likely to go back to it. Mm. So that's interesting too because I hear a lot of people talk about you know, they might try a placement or they might go into say a, a school as a teacher. They have a bad experience and they don't want to become a teacher, but it might've just yeah. been that experience at that school.
2: Mm, mm. Totally. Yeah. I resonate that with a lot, uh, with that a lot. One of the people I met who reinforced that was um, when I worked on the, the bushfire response um, in 2009 uh, was Christine Nixon, who was the chief of police at the time. Um, and uh I had the fortune of, of meeting with her and have, having a mentor session. And I said, you know, like the public service is, is a good place to work and, and politics, but she's like, but some environments are not great. And she she just said, look, not all contexts are the same. Not all bureaucracies are the same. Even if you're, say, working in a government context, like one team to another team, one department to another department. And I found the same when I was, um, when I became a lawyer, like I did some clerkships at firms and even within a particular firm, like certain teams have a better fit than others. And so really it is about context Mm. of of where you are and people make that, especially when you're young, you kind of like, you want, if you have this pressure to make a really good, and it's an important life decision, right. But you kind of make it on these false assumptions that like, Oh, I didn't like that because I had a bad, I had a bad emotional experience in that particular team or circumstance or workplace. And you, you scrub off kind of either an industry or an organization or a, um, you know, like a, a field even, um, mm. that people do. And sometimes it's, it doesn't, it's not about going that far. Sometimes it's about coming back to what do you, what do you love about that thing? And how can you find a different context to make that operate?
1: Mm.
2: And that's why I find as well,
1: like when people align their careers to like, a, um, something that's global, that can be an impact, that gives you more resilience to then follow through on some of those more challenging contexts because you've got a bigger mission.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It came to me too. When I, um, when I left being, uh, well, like when I went, I left communications and became a lawyer. Um, you know, I, I had this feeling that like, oh, yeah, I am leaving comms because I'm kind of over it and I want to do something different. And I did something different for a while and I, I, I dove in. And the best piece of advice I got was like, when you're trying something new, like come with it. Come to it with like a beginner's mindset, you know, start from scratch, learn the basics and learn those first principles of how anything works. And that's a big theme I think I've had through my career is like, you know, get the basics right. And if you can do the basics repeatedly, that's like a pretty good baseline for being successful. And then you build on that and get more complex and get more sophisticated. Um, but a lot of things can be successful if you do a lot of the basics right and understand like the real core elements and basics and first principles of something. Um, so I did that with law to start from scratch and kind of ran through the basics again but I think it was at the core of it there was something for me that was like I'm departing from a previous career because not because I didn't like it but because of the experience that I had in that particular context at that time. Um, mm-hmm. So it's an interesting learning and like I'm a big believer that you know to look at patterns and stories like we kind of only look at those and we can only realize some of that in hindsight. And so you gotta take that time to reflect and look back and, and see things in that way.
1: Mm, 100%. Love it. 100%. you ask us the next one?
2: Yes, um, this is a simpler one. So um, it'll be a little bit easier. So, uh, so law students are asked to state their particular, uh, so their personal career goals. And they were asked either to state their goal publicly or to keep it private. Um, So, which of the following four things are true? What was the effect of stating their intentions publicly? Number one, they felt closer to attaining their goal and were more likely to follow through. Number two, they felt closer to attaining their goal and were less likely to follow through. Number three, they felt further from attaining their goal and were more likely to follow through. And number four, they felt further from attaining their goal and were less likely to follow through. I think I'm going to go
0: with number three again, because I think sometimes when you say your goal outright, it can feel like a significant stretch. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you, it it kind of grounds it as well. Like it's out in the open and then you can, it's almost like you can help me out here, boys. Like you can.
1: It empowers you more. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, I'm going with three as well. I was initially okay. thinking one, but I'm thinking three because I do agree with what Ty said. And I've experienced that myself where you say it out loud and then it's like, oh, shit, it's real. Maybe it's further yeah. away now, but then it empowers you to actually go after it stronger. Mm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I, my thinking is actually the same as both of you. So, but the answer, we we're all wrong. Uh. <laughs> the answer is actually number two. So it's, the study says that they felt closer to attaining their goal and were less likely to follow through. Um, so it says associating goal intentions with a person's sense of identity. It can be a powerful motivator, like, like you're saying Ty. Um, and, but once their goals announced and declared as part of our identity, it actually decreases their motivation. Once we declare a goal, we can feel a false sense of achieving this goal. We're less likely to follow through because we mistakenly feel we've achieved that goal and are now ready for the next one. Which I think is super interesting, right? Because mm. it's like saying by saying the thing, you've done the thing. Mm. Um, and and I, I you know it's funny because I was I was having a conversation with someone recently about um, startups, and they were saying, "Oh, like you grew up in America, like." Um, you must be able to sell really well. Like you, Americans are known for confidence and marketing things and, and that kind of thing. And I said, uh, yeah, like definitely, you know, that's kind of a cultural thing there. And there's the, uh, I think there's still a bit of, you know, tall poppy syndrome maybe in Australia or a bit of that like hesitance on a global scale to kind of reach to those things. But I think this study is actually like right on because um, I, I feel like there's a lot more, Uh, Bluster behind a bit of that, you know, a lot more confidence that isn't necessarily backed up by what people are actually doing. Whereas um, Australians might have that kind of quieter approach and not say that, Hey, I'm going to take over the world or like, you know, solve global poverty in one go. Um, So you might be sort of and a vision level, it might be a little bit different, but on a practical level, like the follow through is strong and the follow through is there. And so I think people kind of, Sell down Australia or look down in Australia and, or in Australia and go, Oh, I'm not a player on that kind of level. But I don't think that's the case at all. I think, like, like I mean, there's so many amazing, kind of quiet and not so quiet achievers that are just plowing along and doing great things. I mean, look at the success of startups like Canva mm. recently. Um, but also, there's just so much talent here that it just needs to be um, supported. I think um, that's what we do at Sardi, like try and support writers and creators. But I think all across the board, like to find people who are really willing to. And I think that's the thing that can make a big difference in people's like both life and career is like finding someone that can kind of back you um, to make those mistakes or like to try different things. Or like we were talking about before, like maybe you had an initial thing and you tasted it and you're making a decision about it. Um, Not just for mentors, but I would challenge like anyone who's listening to this who's like a manager, right? Or someone who's um, like a big brother or sister or something like that to actually be like as active as you can um, in supporting people. And maybe not according to this, make them state their goals out loud, but kind of state it more quietly on a personal level um, and encourage really that instead that follow through um, to come through. Because I think that um, that has been a big lesson for me is like, uh, it's about, you know, doing the work, right? It's like, it's like putting in the effort, you know, and if you put in, it's like, like I said, like doing the basics, right? You know, and the more you can do that, the more like people come to a resolution that is, you're satisfied. And you're also satisfied with making a decision to not do that anymore because, you know, you put in the work and you can jump off to a different place. Mm. Um, Yeah, I think it's really interesting.
0: I think like a saying that resonates for me on that is, is the whole, you know, actions speak louder than words. Mm. Um, the, you know, under promise over deliver. Um, and I think the, the exposure that I've had in, in my working life has always been to take that mentality to not necessarily, and that maybe that's coming back to the, the Australian culture that I've been exposed to in that you don't necessarily want to, to beat your drum <laughs> constantly. Yeah, around, yeah. This is what I'm working on. This is, this is how good our team is. Um, it, it's almost like let the work speak for itself. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I think has, has pros and cons, um, in terms of, I suppose a con that I think of it, it's almost like sometimes that may actually limit the exposure of, of what you're working on. Um, mm. it might limit the, um, potential opportunities because people are unaware of it for whatever reason. Yeah. It's an interesting thing.
2: Yeah. I think there's a fine balance between that of like, you know, how much you put yourself out there and that's a really important piece to it. Um, opening those opportunities and connections um, as well as like, you know, that balance, I think that balance is tricky for a lot of people in startups because especially because people come to it for like either tech backgrounds or certain kind of other oh, social entrepreneurs that want to make that impact. Um, and maybe there's concerned with, like in social entrepreneurship spaces, like outcomes, right. Mm-hmm. Or in startups, like, you know, scaling and getting like rapid growth in clients um, to build and, um, or they're, they're focused on building the, the product and then like marketing and selling the product becomes more of a challenge and becomes harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like, if you look at one before the other, uh, it doesn't kind of make, it doesn't kind of work as well as kind of saying um, if we integrate, the pieces of marketing and, and production together. Like if we start to tell the story and this is where this piece on uh, storytelling comes in, right. It's like, um, it's not that it is, I think in Australia, a place where people are like less promotion oriented. I think they just, um, they, there's a, a, hesitance to put yourself out there um, like put yourself out there in a, I'm going to be judged, maybe, uh, as opposed to I'm owning this story and I'm going to put it out there. I think there's a subtle distinction, but I think it's kind of really important because, um, in any kind of work that people are doing, like it becomes a, a narrative. And one of Dan Ayerly's actually other um, points that he has a lot is that like what we do is we attach a story to something, and then that story kind of whether it's our career or whether it's our work or whether it's the product that we're selling. Um, and you know, it takes on a life of its own based on the story we attach to it. Um, and so I think if we are hesitant to attach a story to it, if we're hesitant to put something out there, it attaches the story of, I'm not sure I want to put this out there, or I'm a little bit reluctant to put this out there. And it's the same with the career. Like i maybe I'm a little bit reluctant to take a risk because, um, the story could be the story of failure and, mm-hmm. and the work that I do, like both at Sardi, I'm also, um, on a couple of boards. And one of the boards is like, an um, our organization called the 100 story building, which is a children's literacy organization. And we encourage creative risk-taking and creative writing for primary school students. And we teach them the, like the creative process. And that is all about like taking a creative risk. It's about reframing and owning your own stories. We work with like disadvantaged and marginalized young people. And a lot of that work is about, Saying like, let's imagine a different story for you, you know, um, and that's I think what we're talking about too. In terms of career, is like if you taste the bite of the apple of something, um, that's and the, or the lemonades, you know, good enough. You might not imagine a different story for yourself, or that story that maybe you did imagine when you were a kid or you're in school, or you were growing up. Maybe that story actually kind of diminishes or vanishes or kind of gets parked in a basement somewhere. Um, And you don't kind of remember or revisit that story. So I think, you know, for people that are listening and are like, well, how does this all practically kind of relate? It's like, actually, you probably have something that you, that connects to really who you are and the story that you want to tell, that you would be really proud to tell, that you want to aspire to be one day. Um, And like, what is the scenario in which you could actually tell that story is the question I would ask them. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you put yourself in a scenario where you're telling that story um and then how would you do the smallest possible thing one percent one little you know a couple of minutes a week to to get yourself to the point where you're telling that story because otherwise you're telling a story that like of a career that you fell into or a career that like you didn't intentionally choose or a career and and there's no kind of um there's no point where you can't do that. Like I was just talking to a friend about Toni Morrison who wrote her first novel at 40, Um, you know, JK Rowling, who was in her late thirties, who when she wrote Harry Potter um, and all those people who have, who've done, you know, Steve Jobs and his ups and downs, like all those people who've done amazing things um, at that older level um, or that at one point where they just, that was the point where they started to take control of their narrative like of the story that they were telling themselves and that they were putting out in the world. Um, so it comes from reflection, I think. And it comes from that, like, like that exercise of you know, asking yourself what's really important to you. When I was working with young people, we did an exercise where we asked them to list a bunch of things that were important to them. Um, like what family members could you live without? What things could you live without? Like what five words could you use to describe yourself? And then we had them slowly take away, um, the things that they wrote down until they're left with a couple of important things. And for me, um, the things I was always left with were community and creativity. And I realized that those are like two of my most important values. Mm. And, and so I decided to build like all the work that I did around those things. Um, and I really haven't looked back. And it took me a long time to get to that point, like a long time. Um, I knew those things were important to me. I could kind of articulate them, but then I got into spaces where I felt like I wasn't living those things out. Um, and part of that had mental health challenges with it and and then i came back to like okay what's really really important to me and it ties into this idea of follow your passion right do you guys like hear that you know go follow your passion
0: yeah and and to be honest mate it's not necessarily something i agree with all the all the time yeah what are your thoughts yeah i think that dan once said in an episode and and it's always um it's always stayed with me it's like how can you say to a young person follow your passion when their lived experience hasn't necessarily been uh, that extensive. So how do they actually know what their passions are? Yeah, and I was like, exactly. yeah. it's a really, really good point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think the frame that I kind of use with, when I talk to young people now, it's like, you know, what, what, what are you actually interested? Like, what are your interests? Like we haven't, yeah, we need to yeah. validate these with, with lived experience. Um, I think again, where we feel like we need to just narrow our passions into like one or two or three things. And I, and mm. I, I actually don't think that's necessarily healthy. I think you should be passionate about multiple things. Um, and when it comes to work and that relationship, I think that for a healthy work life, I think the passion needs to be constantly evolving um, for you to stay yeah, definitely. engaged and for you to, to stay at the forefront of what you're doing and, and, and to feel that drive um thoughts queries yeah no
2: i i agree with that too i mean my my perspective is too like instead of like the advice of follow your passion should we kind of discover your passions mm. um and you know like how do you scratch your itch how do you go through that process um and for me kind of part of that framework is like uh, looking at uh the energy that you get from things and like you know i i always do the exercise with i had a um I did the big brother, big sister program in Australia for quite a long time. And I had a, a little brother, his name's John, and, he, and he's tremendous. So we met when he was like seven years old. Um, and now he's you know at uni and, and doing great things. Um, so we have been friends for a long time, but I remember taking him to like a bookstore and he'd never really gone to one before when he was young and just saying, be like, hey, look, check out what you like. Um, and so we, we did that exercise a few times growing up and at various stages, you know, like when he was in school, primary school, and then when he was in high school, and then even at uni, we like, and He's you know what he wanted changed and what he liked changed, um, but a got him excited about reading, which is like a fundamental skill, right? To have, um, and then he kind of followed what he was encouraged to. like kind of follow what he was interested in, um, and he started reading a lot about kind of career advice and like um, how to support people through um, coaching and that kind of space. And then he ended up going to uni in maths because he also loved maths, um, and so now he does a lot of work in careers coaching, but he's also going back to complete his studies in, in maths. And he's like, got this really interesting mix of two different skill sets. Mm. Um, But he's really passionate about both of them, but it took him a while to like work that out. You know, he just Mm. read a bit and sat on it a bit. And like, it's also kind of, I I said to him one time, I was like, what's the thing? Like, if I said to you, you can only read one book or you can't read 10 of the books that you've picked, you can only pick one. Like, what is it that you, can't not do um and he's like oh i just like if i couldn't do this i would feel like something was missing and that's also a a good way to kind of discover a bit more about what you're passionate about you know rule things out rule things in and then find the things that you can't like not do Mm.
1: i always like the one as well don't follow your passion but take it with you wherever you go yeah, yeah nice. One. And I'll give you an example. Like, a friend of mine is um, a yoga teacher, but also a, a teacher and mm-hmm. a primary school teacher in school. And, like, she does the primary school teaching, but then she's now embedded yoga teaching into some of the school days for staff. Yeah, so she's great. Taking her passion with her as she's going.
0: That's cool. For some commentary on this, too. Like, I think that we're seeing more people you know, develop side hustles, develop passion projects outside of their, Mm. their standard nine to five, um, for lack of a better term, but, and then allowing them to actually be more creative or sorry, that's, that's allowing them to feel more creative in their nine to five work. Um, and and I think that has positive flow on effects. And I've even, um, worked with a couple of, um, individuals who in their, the businesses that they work for they, they do the four day work week and then one day is purely for passion projects yeah, um, and yeah. you have to like report back to the leaders of the, the business like you know what passion project you're working on why um, you're working on it why is it important to you how are you going about it people are like roasting their own coffee beans people are like you know um, cultivating bees, bee colonies, people are just spending more time with their kids because they feel like, yeah, yeah. And, and so I think that's that type of reconnection with passion that isn't necessarily defined as, as, as traditional work in, in their life mm. at this moment. Um, yeah. It just has a world of good for in every area, like happiness within their, their personal life, happiness within their yeah. work, fulfillment or all of the flow and effects.
1: Mm. There's a term we're using in uni at the moment called entrepreneurship. Yep.
0: Yeah.
1: Basically people learning entrepreneurship skills from these other sorts of things and then bringing them internal to organisations mm. and businesses and it's mm. giving that flow on benefit.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Boys, if you, if you don't mind, I'd love to change things, uh, change the, I suppose, the, the conversation ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Sandeep, I'd love to, to hear more around your journey from the perspective of the, those moments when you realized your career that you were in, um, you needed to make a change or you needed to to make the transition and, and how you went about mm-hmm. that. Because the the um, from what you shared so far and before we jumped on on air and, and, and your insights so far, I feel had really... Demonstrate someone who 's really embraced reflection, really embraced going deep on their values on their their purpose and and also um, yeah, mindfulness practices and, and exercises like that. Do, do you mind sharing and unpacking that
2: yeah absolutely i mean there 's probably a lot to say on that, so please stop me if i 'm going on for a while but um, <laughs> good. I think it happened at kind of well there were probably two main points where I really changed, so I studied communications out of uni. I ended um, up working in that space, um, and for a while. And um, I always sort of worked in crisis response. And one of the things that working in crisis teaches you is like what's kind of valuable because people are possibly dying, or there's like you know life and death situations and, and bushfires and things like that. And um, it teaches you how to be calm in a crisis and and make decisions quickly. And kind of respond. And I really enjoyed that work. I thought, you know, engaging with the community aspect of it um, was really important because we were helping people on the ground and, and bringing that voice for community back into sort of positions of power and government and things. Um, and we had the Black Saturday bushfires. And so I was a media manager during that time um, and speechwriter writer for the Emergency Services Commission in Victoria. And what we did uh, or what happened was that, um, you know, it was the worst disaster in Australian History in terms of deaths, um, national disaster, and uh, until COVID, actually, um, and then we had uh, we did a, we did a recap afterwards. We had uh, in I think six weeks or seven weeks, we had one hundred and eighty-six thousand media requests um, that me and a small team were managing, just to our office, which is the lead office, um, about what was going on. We had you know briefings twice a day. We were Kind of working five till midnight just to keep on top. The fires themselves lasted for six weeks. Um, it was a pretty intense period of time. Um, and coming out of that, like we then, you know, then there was a, a royal commission into that whole uh, disaster and what happened, and that lasted two years. And um, the commission I was working for. Um, I uh, was criticized heavily in the final report. We had to also make policy changes to fix things that went wrong on the fly during that time. So it was a lot of juggling and a lot of things happening. Um, and it was really important and valuable work. And then uh, uh, the commissioner left and there was kind of no one in that role for the well. Um, there is a restructure going on that lasted like a year at the same time as the world commission. Uh, we were dealing with lawyers every day. And it went from the absolute best that humans can be and government can be like, everyone dropped all the bureaucracy, everyone dropped all the things that didn't matter, and they ended up just putting, um, support first, like whatever we needed to do to get support to these communities, to get people who were affected, you know, get them a house or get them a place to stay or get them food, get them the things that they need when their houses or whole communities were destroyed was the most important thing. And then it was also simultaneously or like right after that, the worst because everybody got protectionist because the, the Royal commission was investigating all of them. Um, everyone had millions of dollars in legal fees. Um, and it was like, you know, bureaucracy is worth because people, there was like a lot of disorganization, people were arguing about which way forward, which I mean, sometimes happened in public policy, like it's not easy to make those decisions, but there was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of protectionism. There's a lot of like um, kind of going back into a space instead of being really open um, and then trying to impose policies on that and seeing what the Royal Commission had to say and then deciding that. And then kind of the sector was a bit of messy for a while. Um, and so I did exactly what that study was like. I was like, oh, communications, like, nah. You know, like, this is a mess. Government communications is always like this. It, it's good for a little while, then it becomes a mess. Um, which is kind of actually true, but also, like, not necessarily the experience you have to have. And um, and we were doing with lawyers, so I was like, I need to study law. And it's funny because, you know, when I was – I went to a school, a primary school that finished in year eight. And year eight, we had to stand up and say what we were going to be in life. And my parents, you know, being hardworking immigrants, my mom was a doctor. My dad was like a chemical engineer. And um, so I was like, you know, what, they, what would they be proud of? I kind of didn't, wasn't sure if I had an idea about myself. But I, so I said, lawyer, I said, I want to be a lawyer. And so I had in the back of this mind that I hadn't made it until I was going to be a lawyer. So I went to law school um, part-time while I was working after the bushfires and the World Commission got started about a year in. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed really learning. And I realized that it wasn't um, only after this fact, like I went through law school, um, I enjoyed learning it, I enjoyed the intellectual stimulation of it, um, but I think I enjoyed the time frame of impact. And so one of the big things I learned was like, you need to understand for yourself, like, on what scale you want to make an impact and what ownership and outcomes you want to see in a place. Um, you know, fast forward, having gone through law school, um, having applied for a couple of firms and done clerkships and tried it out and thought, Hey, I really like this. It's kind of really smart thinking and problem solving. And I got into a firm and I was doing the work and two things happened. Like one, I noticed that I was kind of not interacting with people as much I was in court. Sometimes I was with people, but a lot of the stuff got settled. Um, and I wasn't, um, like I wouldn't own an outcome. Like I couldn't give advice to someone. Um, and then see the good smile on their, or like the positive outcome from that. We were dealing with the the tough end, and that's what lawyers do, you know. But one of the partners I worked with was like, we are as lawyers kind of professional pessimists. That's the job. Like you look at risks, right? And and for me, I realized that wasn't like a space that was naturally aligned to kind of who I was or the way I wanted to think. I found myself being more pessimistic and critical about lots of things um, in my life. And then that coincided with, I mean, that was okay for a while, to be honest. Like I enjoyed being able to like cut through a problem and and nail it and find the risks and the the problems and solve those problems and the problem solving aspects of legal work was great. Um, But then I had my son. So um, my eldest son is five now. When he was born, um, we were really excited to become parents for the first time. And, um, you know, we had a healthy pregnancy all the way through. And the day that he was born, um, he was a little bit small, and he came a couple weeks early, but nothing out of the ordinary. Um, and so one of the doctors came by and just did a normal check. She said, I'm checking the pulses of your baby and put um, her thumbs on his his legs. And she's like, oh, they're a little bit weak. I'll come back in a little bit and check again. Did the same thing again. Um, said, oh, no, still not 100% right. I'll come back again. Came back a third time. She's like, I'm still not sure. I'm going to get another... Um, opinion i'm gonna get the cardiologist to come through so she brought a pediatric cardiologist and it turned out that my son had a, um, a narrow aortic arch which is a part of his heart that has blood flow pumping through it and it was too narrow um, and so he was on watch the first five days which is the first six days of us being parents um, and he was getting better you know his blood flow was increasing he was putting on weight he was feeding and those types of things and he's like okay this is good he also had some holes in his heart when he was born. And I was born with holes in my heart closed when I was four or five without any consequence. Um, and so they were watching those closely as well. And at the end of five days, we were able to go home. So we're like, okay, this is good. If so we went home, a little bit nervous, but, you know, we were going to go home with our baby. Um, and they said, they'll come back in a. we're going to check you in a week. So we went back in a week and he um, had gotten worse. So, and the doctor said, look, um, I did a heart scan. It's gotten narrower. His blood flow is not working. Um, he's going to have to go straight to the children's hospital for heart surgery. So we, you know, two weeks, less than two weeks into being parents, like 14 days old, he's uh, operated on and has heart surgery. And, um, and, you know, obviously like work was great about it. They gave me leave absence. They're so, like, you just take whatever time you need. Um, but, obviously like not only does the process of becoming a parent like change who you are and what matters to you and your perspective, like that love that you get from having a family and having children is pretty profound, but the way we became parents also was really challenging. And so, um, you know, he recovered, he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. Then we took him back home, he had to kind of restart and now he's really healthy. But, um, you know, through, like, it went from being appointments every couple of weeks to appointments every couple of months to expanding out. Then he had a, another scare where the holes kind of weren't, were pretty dangerous, and then they got better. So, like, he's great, um, and he's never physically, like, you've never seen any kind of adverse effects. Um But after a couple, after four weeks and kind of in and out of the children's hospital and then with my baby and then coming back to work, at one point, one of the partners had left the firm and I got a phone call saying, Hey, um, we didn't mean to disrupt you or like interrupt you, but we just want to let you know that one of the partners is leaving our team. And I just thought to myself, like, I'm in a world of something and the world that you're talking about is so different. Like it's so removed from my experience. Um, and then I went back and you know, I worked at it. I really I liked the work that I was doing. We were doing employment and safety law and it was important work. I just, um, I couldn't find it in me to not spend more time at home. Um, so even wanting four days and then wanting even more, I think. And I saw people kind of um, sometimes committing to, being parents And the firm had a good policy on that, but it just wasn't enough for me. Um, and then there was the aspect of like seeing the work Uh, seeing the work that I was doing actually make a difference. And I think that came back to like who I was and what difference I wanted to make in the world. But that was challenged by like the idea that, uh, you know, life is fleeting in in what happened with my son. And if we only have a little bit of time, like what difference can we really, do we really, really want to make? What impact do we really want to make? What's important to us? And what can we kind of, going back to the idea we talked about before, what story do I want to tell? Like, what can I say to my kid, you know, about what I do? Um, And is that story, for me, like the story that is resonant, and the story that I'm proud to say, and the story that feels really authentic and and true and 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 honorable, I think in my own sense, um, and and it wasn't uh, anymore, and I couldn't. I struggled in and out of it. I had mental like health challenges. The law is notorious for that. Uh, law students have some of the worst mental health. Um, of any students and then lawyers themselves also have a pretty bad space. So I um, went through my own challenges, also became an advocate for better mental health in the legal profession. But at the end of the day, um, I left corporate work uh, and my favorite subject at law school was actually children's rights law and I'd always volunteered with young people. So I wanted to go back and make a difference in that space. And so I became a children's rights lawyer, then I worked in children's rights, human rights projects because that was something that I wanted to um, like do for myself. But at the end of the day, Uh, being a lawyer is still about that professional pessimism perspective. It's about, you know, the tail end of, especially with young people, like kids um, that are facing jail time or kids that are, you know, not supported by system all the way through. And then you have to make sure that the worst possible thing doesn't happen to them in a courtroom. Um, Or maybe they come back and have, you know, all these other circumstances that influencing them get to that point. Um, And then, so for me, that became about how do I do more empowerment based work at the front end of that process? Um, how do I see the impact in people more tangibly at that, like empowerment part of the process, preventative part of the process. Um, so that led to me doing two things, one, which I do now, which is, you know, working with Hunter hundred story building and helping them, um, with disadvantaged young people find their creative process, imagine different futures, write their stories in different ways and exercise their creativity. And then the same with Sari kind of, um, advocate for South Asians to be in Australia, tell their own stories, um, have a ways for them to feel like someone is out there that is kind of like them or gets them um, in a culture where they often feel like they're constrained or there isn't that same kind of level of openness around, uh, around mental health issues, which we talk about a lot through our, our process around, you know, creative careers and that kind of space, which is something that, I realized that like, if my values were creativity and, and community all the way through, that I probably wasn't exercising that creativity in the way that mattered to me. And that led to me, I think there's no way that you can continue to do that without it adversely affecting your mental health. So, and the, the challenge for me was like an identity thing it was like, oh, am I a person who's like a depressive person? Or am I a person who's like, in my career, a person who just struggles? And what we haven't done in our society, we're trying to do, a lot of people are trying to do is normalize what our mental health challenges is. And I heard this amazing description that was like, health is health it can either be mental or physical and physical health affects your mind and mental health except affects your body. And I buy that a hundred percent that like we're not sophisticated enough yet as a society to, and in science to, to really adopt that. But I think there's physiological effects from mental health and, and, you know, mental effects from physiological health that just coincides. So the idea of health being health is something I really believe in now. And I think that, you know, you can exercise to benefit your mental health. You can meditate to affect your physical health. I think there's just such a connection that, why split that? And so if you're feeling healthy, that means you're feeling mentally and physically healthy. And I think um, that comes back to this one idea that I came across um, uh, in this book called The Creative Habit, which I read, which is talking about, um, are you in a rut or are you in a groove? And that's a good way to make your decision. So when I ended up choosing to go from like doing human rights project with young people to working on a Uh, a a social enterprise and a startup and using those skills, I had a lot of imposter syndrome. I thought I wasn't good enough. I didn't know I had the skills. Um, The program I went through, Catalyzer, you know, gave me a sense of community and a sense of support and a sense of confidence in that space. There's still a lot of imposter syndrome along the way. But one thing I did notice in that process was that, you know, a rut like kind of feels like, You're boring yourself sometimes or your, or your wheels are spinning. It's not going anywhere. You're not challenging yourself in the right ways. You know, it might be hard or like important, or maybe you're making a lot of money, but it, it feels like kind of you're standing still. Um, and the world is moving on a little bit. Um, And maybe that's the result of like it's a bad idea or it's a bad timing or it's a bad circumstance or just bad luck, you know, that's happened at a particular time or a particular space. Um, But I think more so it's because you're sticking to a tried and true method um, of how you've done things in the past and you're not growing and evolving. Um, And so for me, finding a groove, and this goes back to like the idea of um, strengths, you know, from positive psychology, like playing to your strengths. There's a great book that I recommend to everyone called flourish by martin seligman um and flourish talks about how we have to identify our character strengths and those are more than just like hey i'm good at excel or powerpoint you know it's actually like what are your character strengths have you guys come across this concept
0: i've come, i have have not come across that book flourish um but i have definitely come across the the strengths process of of identifying and, and most of the time the way i define it is when you're aligning your strengths, most of the time it's, it's giving you energy or you're, you know, it's, it's not exerting much energy on your behalf. Um, yeah. And when you're not working with your strengths, it's the opposite.
2: Yeah. That's what he says. I mean, his research also proves that. Um, and so he has these character strengths. So, um, a couple of mine are like leadership and creativity, but the, the most, the biggest one is love of learning. Um, And so I realized that like, I need to play to my values and also play to my strengths. And he Mm -hmm. says that exact same thing that um, you were just saying that like, if you play to your strengths, you're gonna go leaps and bounds ahead. Whereas if you work on your weaknesses, you might come up to par. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's about as far as you'll get and so um, you know I read that he was actually my professor at uni and then I read that book early on then I went back to that book when I was kind of feeling pretty low and trying to struggle with what I was doing and it was like these are your character strengths they're not tied to like what work you do or how good you are at something these are just things that are part of your character and who you are and they're important to exercise those things and so I thought I read a lot I was like okay I love learning what kind of work I can I do I'm exposed to lots of different things I can learn about those things um, and I can exercise that thing and I realized that that actually kind of what I did a fair bit of when I was a speechwriter was like we got a topic or we had to speak on something or we were responding to some community issue in the media we had to get up to speed on that thing pretty quickly and then put out an intelligent statement or a comment or media interview and now the work that I do with Sardi which is like creating stories and and talking about current issues like mental health in our communities like um you know family violence uh, but and all kinds of other things you know we have a gossip column in the works and all kinds of other stuff. is is about that? Is about that, like um, that love of learning, that learning about something enough, and then going forward and using that thing. Um, and I realize that if I build my time into my week to to learn, you know, to find nerdy games like the irrational game, to to, to dive into books, you know, that that also feeds that strength. Um, and that encapsulating that learning, reflecting on it, putting it back to use of some kind of way is really a way to use my strengths and then the other really big important aspect that i would be remiss not to mention around mental health is like the things like you're saying that give you energy but also the things that i i kind of need to recharge Mm -hmm. and to be conscious and aware of myself when i'm not feeling recharged to slow myself down a little bit um to make that kind of time and to not take on a billion things you know because we end up making really really long to-do lists and it's like we feel crap because we haven't got to taking them off or maybe we're not where we're meant to be. And we're comparing ourselves to others, you know, a lot more than looking at ourselves. And part of that has been so like exercise, um, you know, meditation, like I use the apps, smiling mind and headspace, which are two really good meditation apps. Um, and, uh, I also really highly recommend something that, um, uh, that a lot of people, especially in Asian and South Asian cultures aren't really familiar with, which is, uh, the work of Dr. Christian Nuff on self-compassion. Um, so it's a something that culturally, like there's just no vocabulary around. And self-compassion has um, like three components. So one is like mindfulness, um, where you're kind of aware of what you're feeling and putting names to that, that kind of EQ piece. And the other one is this recognition of common humanity. So that says that like, hey, I, f- I may feel like I'm having a shit day, but everybody has a shit day. You know, it's like, it's, it's a normal thing. Um, and then the last piece is called self-kindness. So that's one of the exercises is like write a letter to yourself that your best mate would tell you, um, and that's, and be like, Hey, you know, you're doing all right. You're great. You're just having a, a rough time, you know, like you'll be fine. Um, and that, I think that practice there's like, there's actually a workbook that Dr. Christenhoff has written that you can buy. That's pretty cheap that you can go through that has all some self-compassion exercises. And it was a skill I realized I didn't have whatsoever, like that mm. self-talk on, mm you negativity. And so I kind of practiced and and learned a lot about it and trained myself a bit. And um, that self-compassion piece has been a really important process that I, you know, I know when I'm feeling not great, I like, I use writing as a tool and I write a self, do a self-compassion exercise. When I do those things, I write a letter to myself from my mate and be like, just short, like, what kind of, what would he say about me to me? And the point of that is actually not to, um, the point of that is actually to get to the point where, You start talking to yourself in that way, like you actually befriend yourself. And I think a lot of like depression and negative self-talk and and that criticism that comes in the mental health space comes from like our own internal monologue, right, or internal dialogue that we have with ourselves. And a lot of that can be critical and negative. And that's where like I think lawyers face a lot of those mental health challenges because it is about that critical perspective you bring to things and then applying that like criticism to yourself. And maybe it comes from migrant backgrounds. Lots of people have that challenge. Um, and so it's kind of about how do you befriend your, your, your self-talk? How do you befriend how you speak to yourself? And even if it's like forcing yourself to take a break from how you normally do it and do it in like a self-compassionate way. Um, I can't highly recommend the work of Chris enough, but also just generally the self-compassion piece. Um, strongly enough. So that for me has been a big mental health journey. So yeah, I, I said I've talked for a while and I have, but I think that's a, a, <laughs> right, a, okay. my big journey in that mental health space. And I think it's, you know, it's always something that to be mindful of in my current work, but um, it's also something that I think we need to continue to do the work to normalize across lots of different communities and lots of different workplaces.
0: First of all, thank you so much for those those insights. I think it's, it, it's so valuable hearing it from your perspective, someone who has gone through many different stages of their career so far and you've had those those moments where you've gone i need to make a change here um and and the way in which you've shared i think our listeners and and i know something that i I probably was thinking about too while you were talking around is that process of making that change become real through the self-talk because i think what I've experienced um, not only in my own probably career, but also helping others um, is that that is always the, the number one barrier. It's always going, oh, no, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't I, like for whatever reason, you talk yourself out of the change. Um, and I think if we, as a population, if we listen more to, to our, our self-talk and, and, and came at it from more of a compassionate space, It would have a tremendous result um, across the
2: community yeah absolutely i think it's such a uh, a a little thing that makes such a big impact Mm. Um, and you see the people that can back themselves through the difficult situations Mm. Um, and you know we get to a point at any career where we have like decisions to make or you know like whether we trust our our instincts or whether we you know follow our logical kind of thought process or a bit of both, mm. um, yeah, there's a really important piece there on like um, how you talk to yourself and and make sure that that talk encourages you to find that sense of confidence in self and stay true to who you are, um, and and it assists you in decision making as you go forward. Mm, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now, mate, for, for listeners who are wanting to engage with the content of Sari Collective, um, how can they do that? And how can they, um, also perhaps see your updates as well?
2: Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn, um, under Sandeep Varma, Um, and also Sari Collective is on, um, pretty much all social platforms except for TikTok at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, so you can find us at our website, saricollective.com.au, um, or on, you know, Instagram Facebook and Twitter as well. Cool. Um, and, and we're on LinkedIn too. Um, and so I I use primarily LinkedIn as my main medium to engage people, um, and do a bit on Twitter as well. So people can find us there. Awesome, man. And if, if people, perhaps listeners who, who want
0: to engage, um, a little bit deeper and, and perhaps, involved with some of the work the same kind of um process of getting involved through the social yeah you know
2: we're always looking for people um to join sardi collective and to find that sense of community uh, to be part of it we what we do is as a model we pay our writers to write um as well as giving them that training so if people kind of just have an idea for something they want to write or have an inkling hey i think i could write this would it work you know we would love to have a chat we'd love to support you to to give expression to that our categories are really broad for what we publish on um and we can also pay for those pieces and a small scale um, at this early stage of what we're doing so there's a button on the Saudi collective website called join the collective. And if you click that button, then, um, one of our editorial team members and myself will, will, uh, will get in contact with you, um, and just talk to your ideas. So we encourage people that are looking for that sense of support and community and just wanting to try it out to come along and check it out, check out our content. Um, and also if you see something that you think we could add to it, like, you know, be that person, like, mm. don't be afraid to do that. And don't be afraid to get it wrong. Cause we'll help you get it right. Mm. Um, and you know we've had a, a couple of writers like when we had a, a meeting a while back who um, you know either couldn't find work or couldn't get published in Australia um, you know they were international students some of them they'd struggled a bit um, some of them had like master's degrees in journalism but they weren't able to find work you know you know that famous study where if you have a different name. Um, yeah. you know, people don't hire you and that kind of thing. So maybe it's that, maybe it's yeah. just, they need a bit more uh, polish with their stuff. In either case, like, um, and we were able to help them out and publish their stories. And, um, you know, they invited their parents to one of our zoom calls because they were so proud of what they'd written and they got published and, um, they did some amazing work. I mean, some people wrote about one person, especially during the lockdown last year, um, couldn't go back to India to see his family. So he wrote about, having his experience of Christmas for the first time in his life, um, being South Asian, bringing some of his traditions here to Australia, doing that with his friends. And it was really fresh because, you know, he was like, what are Christmas songs? And like, everyone who's grown up in a Western country is like, oh yeah, Mariah Carey, I, I'm over that, you know? Like, right, like I hear it in the supermarket from September onwards, yeah. I, I never want. It. But for him, it was like a new thing. Oh, wow, what is that? That's cool, like, yeah. I didn't know there was a thing. Um, And so he dove into all that stuff. Um, Buble, he was like, I'm loving Buble, you know? And all of us are like, oh, Buble, like, it's so, you know, (laughs) it was just, it's such a, it's such a fresh perspective on it. He was so excited about celebrating his first Christmas. Um, Equally, we had another person who was South Asian who um, had spent two years in a seminary and he has a Christian background. He's very um, spiritual in his faith, you know? And so he wrote about it from what Christmas meant to him, not about the celebration and the gifts, but what it meant to him, like on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was also South African. So um, it was awesome to offer kind of two different perspectives that really important and valid that you just don't see anywhere else um, out there, back out there in the the media, at whatever small scale we're at now, um, to encourage those different perspectives to be validated and to give those people a voice about that their experience is really. unique and special and that their perspective is actually really important to be out there so that people Mm. can, I mean, I read the piece about the first Christmas and I was like, wow, actually like maybe I'm taking Christmas for granted, like this stuff, Mm. you know, there's a reason I think Marika is kind of popular. The song's (laughs) kind of cool, you know, like you do get over it after hearing it a million times, but, um, it, uh, yeah, it was just refreshing to see that. That's cool, man.
0: And I think I'm so glad you came on the podcast. So thank you so much because I think as a collective community, especially in Australia, I think the more that we can do to understand um, and subscribe to that notion of of global citizenship and and really Mm -hmm. understanding, you know, other cultures and and their perspectives, it's it's a win-win for for everyone the way I see it. And I know for me personally, it's something, and, and Dan in particular as well, um, it's something that we're really mindful of with our platform that we want to make sure that we've, we've got people, um, who, who are bringing different voices from different parts of the community. So I really appreciate your time tonight.
2: Yeah. You know, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You guys are doing great work. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's really important to encourage like the, the discussion and all the different perspectives on the conversations and the questions that you're asking. Um, because I think there's, you know, the more that's out there, the more advice that's out there for people, they'll find something that resonates with them by going through and by hearing those things. And it um, it makes people just a little more informed and a little less afraid um, mm-hmm. to take some of those risks and maybe a little also more, um, you know, a chance to hear reflections that can make an impact on them. And I think that's what's the amazing thing is like, you don't know, how you're reaching people, what kind of impact you might have. It's like, you know, when you read a good book, right? And it makes a big difference to your life. um, The author might not ever know that, Mm. you know, but you might be talking about it or you might be telling other people about it and it might be changing lives without even knowing it. Um, Mm. So that's a great thing that you guys are doing. Thanks for listening.
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of the Arrive and Thrive podcast, please let us know by sharing it with a connection and leaving a review. We hope that through this podcast, even more people can design a career and life that they love
1: and are proud of. See you soon.